Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're talking with Maya Dusenberry. She is a freelance freelance writer, editor, and author of the book, Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leaves Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. Maya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I've, I've already told you several times how much I loved your book. Um, still do, of course. Um, but it, 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 it was just so, um, it was so fascinating. Like I, I wanted to do a show on this topic and I, I thought it would be um, hard to find something. And of course, your book having just come out, it was perfect timing that I was yeah. looking for someone like you. So thank you so much for, for bringing this information um, into the forefront so everybody can understand what's actually happening yeah thank you I think it's definitely uh, past time for for a book to sort of pull together I think uh, research that uh, supports what a lot of women sort of know from their own experience for sure well you know I I am having um, struggled with looking for a Lyme diagnosis, of course, not knowing for 14 years, I mm. thought that I, I didn't realize how I was treated was actually also part to do with my sex. Um, it hadn't occurred to me because now treating people with Lyme, it's, it is men and women that have these stories to tell that are so similar to what I experienced. But with what you say in your book, this, um, although can happen to men, happens to women way more as the studies show. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's one of those things that um, it's hard to pick up on that sexism when you're just one individual moving through the medical system and and really only have your own experience to kind of look at. And it's easy to say, you know, maybe this was just a bad doctor or, you know, how, how can you really tell if, if a man would be taken more seriously? Um, so I think it really does kind of take starting to hear these stories from many people and, and look at the the research to say, you know, yeah, there is sort of a pattern here. And, and as you say, it does affect men for sure, and especially in a disease like Lyme. Um, but there is that additional burden on women. Well, and you talked at one point about um, excuse me, somebody who had um, collected stories about, um, I think it was chronic pain and, and women weren't believed and then they couldn't get help. And most of the men that were interviewed were believed, but they still felt the hopelessness of not being able to get help because there's not a lot of, of help for what they were experiencing. But at least they had the affirmation of their doctor believing that they were experiencing what they were, which is different than what women experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it is it is important to, to note that certainly men with chronic pain or, or other really poorly understood conditions that, that mainstream medicine just doesn't have a lot of uh, help for, to, for any patients with those conditions, you know, obviously the there's sort of the frustration of that and, and the, the suffering that comes with that. But then, yeah, as, as, as you say, this is this sort of additional 
frustration of just not being heard and, and not having your pain at least taken seriously and, and believed as real. Um, which is disheartening. Um, but, you know, I want to go to, um, you know, I ask everybody this question, what inspired you to to write this book and, and, and research this topic? So can you just give us a little bit of background of what drew you into um, doing this? Yeah. Um, so my own experience sort of prompted me um, down this path a little bit. Um, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis about five years ago, and before that had been, you know, very healthy, 20-something, and just really hadn't had too much need to interact with the medical system. Um, And so although I'd been a feminist writer and had written a lot about reproductive health issues, it really wasn't until I got sick myself with RA that I started kind of thinking more broadly and about how sexism affected medicine. And, and really sort of realized that I, as, you know, as a healthy person, it just had been really off my radar. And even as a feminist, felt like I didn't have a really good sort of understanding of, of the history and um, the context to sort of start understanding a lot of what I was learning once I started diving into learning about autoimmune diseases. And, um, and my own experience actually getting diagnosed that was pretty easy and straightforward. I was, I was taken seriously and I got diagnosed pretty quickly. Um, but I started learning that so many other autoimmune, autoimmune patients, um, do not have that journey and, and, you know, go see many doctors over many years and often report really feeling like their symptoms were dismissed or brushed off as stress during that time. Um, so the book kind of was in part kind of just a attempt to understand why stories like that seem to be so common. Well, and, and you know, they they are. And I think the, the important part for uh, people to understand, because this is a big part of your book, is the history of why we're talking about women in this aspect and, and how this is still affecting women. But you talk a lot about the history of hysteria. And I think that's really important to note, if you can just explain that for us. Yeah, yeah. So I think when I started researching I and started hearing sort of stories from a lot of friends who, you know, had West Nile and were told to go see a therapist or, you know, heart pain and were told it was anxiety, um, stories like that, I, I think initially I felt like, oh, you know, this is just uh, yet another area where women's voices and women's testimony about their own experiences is just not being granted the same authority as men's and of course you know as a, as a feminist writer I was not surprised sort of by that but um, as I really kind of dug into that medical history and this history of hysteria I, I realized that there are these kind of deeper roots within medicine more particular reasons that women's reports of their their own symptoms are so often kind of brushed off as as all in your head or psychological like that um, so, you know, the history of hysteria, which is a, a long one, um, so <laughs> hard to kind of condense, but um, this is sort of this label that for centuries, if not millennia, was kind of um, given to any mysterious symptoms in women. And um, in ancient Greek times, it was attributed to a wandering womb throughout the body, and then 
by the 17th, 18th centuries was starting to be seen as sort of a nervous system disorder. And um, for a long time, it was considered, you know, a real physical disease. But then after Freud, as psychiatry kind of became its own specialty, um, there was this pretty radical shift to seeing it instead as a mental disorder that causes physical symptoms. Um, and sort of ever since then, so for the last century or so, we've had kind of different labels to apply to uh, psychogenic symptoms, so symptoms that are thought to be produced by the mind. Um, and so the, the term hysteria itself is, is no longer, you know, an official <laughs> diagnostic category, but there are these different other terms like somatoform or psychosomatic or conversion disorder, um, that has kind of taken its place, and, and this concept has really remained alive and well. And it's always been the case that, that women have been kind of a stereotypical patient um, with hysterical symptoms. And so I think that that really kind of helps explain a lot of why women, you know, so often find their, their symptoms psychologized in this way, which, which you know, is a, is a trend that, women have been complaining about since, you know, at least the 70s saying, you know, this this happens. And um, I think it was interesting to me to see just how this this history of hysteria, which kind of I think we assume is very firmly in the past, is really very, still very present in the le- legacy at least lives on in, in the way that doctors kind of perceive women's symptoms. Well, you you know it's it's really interesting to talk about this history and then like reading your book, understanding that women actually are affected by autoimmune diseases more and by pain more, and we actually most likely have, um, I would say more than most likely, we have legitimate issues that we're going to the doctor for. And um, you know, I th- I think if I have if I remember the stats right, you said it takes five to ten years to get diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, and not because the women aren't, um, you know, relaying their their experiences to their doctor, that their doctor isn't even believing them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the, the stat from uh, the American Autoimmune Related Diseases Association is these days it, it takes four doctors over four years for an autoimmune patient to get diagnosed. Um, and it was even even longer several years ago. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and I think autoimmune diseases and chronic pain conditions and, and a lot of these conditions that do disproportionately affect women tend to be ones that cause subjective symptoms like pain and fatigue, um, that doctors don't get a lot of training on how to diagnose them and so the result is that often you have a woman who's who's complaining of these symptoms that can't be kind of objectively confirmed via a test very easily, um, and and so it becomes a great risk that she'll she'll just be kind of seen as as stressed or you know tired from work or um, you know, and and especially then because again because doctors aren't getting. Tr- great training on something like autoimmune diseases, um, that just, you know, kind of compounds the problem where, you know, there, there isn't a specialist in autoimmune diseases, and, and so often patients are kind of referred all over the place, and, and, um, 
it becomes unclear where who's the, who's the expert to really turn to, um, and a lot of women just fall through those cracks. Uh, which which is why the title of my show is Falling Through the Cracks. Um, exactly. Yes. You know, you had a line, you had that line in your book. I thought, oh, this is perfect. Um, you know, and that's exactly how I felt for 14 years. And I thought it was was mostly um, because Lyme, of course, is not um, accepted by mainstream medicine at this point. Um, but, you know, I was... 21 when I started looking for um, a solution to how I felt. I was very sick Mm -hmm. and I was told that either I had anxiety or I was young and I would get over it. And then when I turned 30, I was told, well, you're 30. So, you know, this is the way you're going to be. And I was sicker than I was when I was 21 told that I would grow out of it. And You know, it didn't make any sense to me. And I said that to one specialist and he said, well, that's not the right response, but I can't help you. And this is probably just normal for you. So uh, I still couldn't get help when he acknowledged that that wasn't right. And, and I, you know, from, from your book and from accounts that I hear, this is a very common that, you know, we're not even functioning in our daily lives because I was not. And, and it's just like, oh, well, you know, this is the way you are. Mm-hmm, off you go, mm-hmm. you know, and not offered anything, um, wh- which is not right. <laughs> No, yeah, and I think, yeah, your experience seems to point to this other sort of tendency where if if women's symptoms aren't kind of brushed off as, as all in your head, they're often really normalized, um, and this, of course, really happens with any sort of menstrual pain or pelvic pain, you know, it gets women get told, you know, it's just normal menstrual cramps. Um, but I think it sort of extends just kind of throughout women's lifetime where, you know, it's, oh, you're young, you're, you know, maybe it's just a hormonal imbalance kind of vaguely attributed to like hormones and then, oh, you, you know, you're pregnant or postpartum, it gets attributed to that. And then by the time you're going through menopause, that becomes another convenient thing to, to blame a a wide array of, of symptoms on, um, and yeah, it really becomes a thing where somehow women are treated as if, if it's just kind of normal for them to be very sick and even sick to the point where they're not functioning. Well, yeah, which is not right. And I think the other opposite of all of those comments, which you bring up in your book as well, is, well, you've delayed having children, so you should just find a partner and have babies and then you'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we can't, we, we can't win because we have babies and that's our problem and, right. and we don't have babies and that's our problem. And, <laughs> um, you know, even if, you know, that is what's going on, those are actually like postpartum is a very serious condition that often does get ignored as well. And, um, um, you know, I, I, I think that all of these things, what a lot of us experience aren't normal, they're just common. And that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that, that they should also be brushed off if that if the case is what they're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point and, and certainly something I discussed in the book when I talked a lot about endometriosis and, and menstrual pain and how, you know, even not just within medicine, but in the culture more broadly, we've kind of accepted that at least a degree of pain with, with menstruation is, is normal. And I think we really do need to question that and say, you know, why it, it's certainly common, but 
just because something's common does not make it normal or doesn't make it inevitable and doesn't make it something that we shouldn't devote research and time into investigating and and trying to see if we can um, turn that around. Yes, exactly. Um, We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Maya Dusenberry. She's the author of Doing Harm. So we'll be back shortly. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Riss. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Maya Dusenberry. She's the author of Doing Harm. Uh, So, Maya, I want to just tell you a little bit about why I sought out this topic. Um, I, I, you know, I hadn't, like I said before, I hadn't realized that that my experience had been um, partly due to my my sex in doctor's offices. And when I I interviewed Abby Norman um, in March about her book, Ask me about my uterus, and she she touched on that on the topic of how doctors are taking women seriously, and I started to see that more and more. And then I had a, a week in my clinic where I had one patient who went to emergency with pelvic pain and um, was very calm and said, you know, I'm in pain, it's very severe, and um, was told it was anxiety and sent home. And then I had a male patient who in that same week went to emergency 
saying it was anxiety and they looked at him and they did a, a, a pelvic CT scan and an MRI and a bunch of testing and then in the end went, oh, maybe it is anxiety. But he oh, got wow. all the testing that the woman needed and I thought, this is such a, a weird overlap. And and he went in saying, full on, I've been diagnosed with anxiety, I can't handle my life right now, please help me. And they did all this this imaging and everything because, you yeah. know, from what I... You know, what I gather in your book was they didn't believe that a man could be experiencing anxiety the way that he was. And there must be a physical cause. And the woman yeah. didn't even receive any of those testings at all. Wow, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a fascinating story. <laughs> Um, and, you know, in, in, in your book, you, you talk a lot about how um, this is, is very common. And um, I wanted people to understand this because, you know, it, it, I think it's important for us to know because having that education of how to approach our doctors and, and what to do is very, very important for women to understand that, you know, we actually may have to shop around and it is it can be serious what we're experiencing experiencing no matter what we're told. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do think um, it's it's really important to, I hope one of the things that the, my book can do is, is just by providing that background and history and context, um, give women um, a kind of understanding about why those things happen, because I do think for, for a lot of women it becomes really kind of confusing and shocking to enter the medical system and, and not be taken seriously or be told, you know, it's anxiety in a case like that. Um, because I think especially for younger women like myself, I'm um, in my early 30s and um, I have sort of grown up with an expectation that, you know, I'll, we've, we've made great strides when it comes to gender equality and that, that my voice will be taken seriously and in any realm that I enter. And so um, I think I, I heard from a lot of women my age as well who, who felt really kind of shocked to, to realize that their symptom reports were not taken seriously. And, um, you know, often it is hard to kind of trace it back to, to sexism sometimes. Um, but, you know, a lot of women kind of spoke to just feeling like they there were these stereotypes at play that seemed to be impacting them that they didn't quite understand but could certainly feel. Um, and, you know, one of the saddest things I, I heard was so many women who kind of spoke to feeling like they needed to bring a male partner or a father or even a son with them to appointments to, to kind of vouch for them and, and to bolster their cre- credibility in that way. Um, and often found that when they did that, they actually were taken more seriously and, and their symptoms were, were treated as, as more real and, and credible. Yeah, which doesn't doesn't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I often recommend that, that people women take um, a man with them to their appointments and they're they're shocked that I'm recommending this and um, and then they're shocked at the outcome. You yeah. know, when when, yeah. when they have somebody come with them and they're like, Oh, you know, and, and it, it one one 
patient, it was even that she had anxiety and uh, the doctor didn't believe her until her husband came with her, which I, oh. you know, I was like, well, this is a little bit opposite of what happens. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it was, uh, it, it, it's funny to me that, that, you know, the main thing that they have to rely on to do testing and where to go is our account of what's going on. And, and if, if our account of what's going on isn't taken seriously, then we're not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. one thing that, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, it, it's just even apart from the sort of um, gendered aspect of this, it is, I think, certainly also a, about a, a larger problem of, of medicine and Western medicine, especially, you know, just really devaluing patients' reports and, and their own experience of their bodies and really forgetting that, yeah, as you say, you know, that we, we're not going to make any progress um, in understanding what's happening with somebody if, if we don't believe they are a reliable reporter of, of what's what they're experiencing in their own body, and, and um, there's just so much knowledge that can be gained by by taking patients' voices seriously in that way. And um, it's it's a shame that we have lost out on so much of that knowledge, especially when it comes to conditions that especially impact women because of this, this these stereotypes and this history. Well, and, and one thing that, that you touch on as well is that we don't know everything. We still don't understand the mechanism for, for everything. We don't understand the mechanism for autoimmunity. So to, so to know, um, I, I think the stat in your book was, was that 75% of those with autoimmune diseases are women. So mm-hmm. just knowing that and that we don't understand all of them um, or how they work, um, we we shouldn't be ignoring the complaints and and the the testimonies of how we feel when we don't understand all the science. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think medicine is just really kind of collectively driven by this sense of um, yeah, real confidence that that somehow the current testing and diagnostic tests and, and current theories are, are complete, even though, you know, history has shown that that has never been true, that, you know, you you look at this pattern of, of previous generations of doctors who said, you know, um, ulcers are due to stress, and then, you know, there's a step forward in, in medical knowledge, and and that those things get overturned, and yet even though we have that history to kind of look back on and learn from, it seems like collectively medicine has this kind of amnesia about that and kind of continually acts as though um, there there is no limit and that we've already figured everything out when that's just, you know, obviously, objectively, not not true. No, and, it, and, and our history is always to deny that something could be it could be different, just like the the ulcer aspect, um, and then you know eventually embracing it and uh, realizing. Um, and you know, in in your book, you talk a lot about the the science behind this, and and especially um, one of the main topics was was about heart disease because you talk about how it was men that are studied in a lot of scientific studies. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. 
Um, so I kind of, in the book, describe um, two main problems that I see, and, and the first one is the what I call the trust gap, which we've kind of talked about a lot. That's that's about you know this history of hysteria that leads to this tendency to brush off women's symptoms as all in their head. Um, but the other big one is this knowledge gap. Um, so there's just this lack of knowledge about women's bodies and, and our symptoms um, that's really due to, in part due to just many decades of leaving women out of a lot of clinical research um, and studying mostly men and just kind of assuming that those results could be extrapolated to women. And it's really only since the early 90s that um, this issue was kind of put on the radar in, in the, the U.S. and, um, you know, there's been a change in federal law so that now the federally funded research must include women and um, there's been some progress in, in sort of shifting research norms so that doctors are, I mean, researchers are including both genders and doing an analysis um, to see if there are any differences, but there's still a lot of, of work to be done on that front and, and a lot of that knowledge that's been gained from doing doing sort of research like that for the last few decades has yet to be incorporated into medical education. Um, but heart disease is a really excellent example of how port- important that research is because for the first 35 years we were studying heart disease, we were basically solely studying it in men. And, and as we started to look at women's experiences, we've realized that actually there are, there are major differences that really can, can impact um, diagnosis and treatment. So women tend to have um, more, quote-unquote, atypical symptoms when they're having a heart attack, so not just the you know chest pain and, and radiating arm pain, but nausea and fatigue and neck, jaw pain. Um, so in part, women are often misdiagnosed or undertreated because their symptoms are just not recognized. Um, and there are also differences in, in risk factors. And, and these days there's actually a kind of a whole newly recognized female pattern heart disease that, that is still actually very difficult to diagnose um, but helps explain why so many women actually are experiencing chest pain and other symptoms of heart disease but go into the ER and and kind of go through all of the standard cardiac testing but are told, you know, nothing's nothing's wrong, you're fine. Um, and so it's, it's a good example, I think, of, of how both that lack of knowledge and that lack of trust in women's patient or symptom reports kind of um, combine and, and really are sort of mutually re- reinforcing and, and, and result in a lot of women being underdiagnosed and undertreated um, and, you know, ultimately, you know, a lot of women dying from heart disease unnecessarily. Well, you know, and I, I think this is common, like throughout your book, there was, was threats of, of this being very common, even if it was cancer or if it was heart disease or um, not not necessarily dying, those things you could if it gets misdiagnosed or ignored, but um, sometimes just being very, very uncomfortable and unable to live a normal life because you can't even get those things taken seriously. And if we're lacking the studies, then we're 
we we can get diagnosed, you know, but not necessarily get help or treatment for it as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I noticed, absolutely. yeah. Yeah, and I noticed one thing you talked about in your book was not only were people finally diagnosed, but even after that, not taken seriously on their account of of pain or what they were experiencing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think you know, there's a lot of um, a lot of focus on the sort of time before a diagnosis happens, and and certainly a lot of women with a range of diseases who experience these long diagnostic delays and um of course it's super super frustrating and and scary to be to be sick and not know what's wrong with you and so i think with good reason that that sort of moment of diagnosis often feels like a turning point and especially if you've been sort of fighting for a long time to figure out what's wrong with you it's often a relief just to to know what it is no matter what it is right but for so many women, I think especially with chronic conditions like autoimmune diseases or chronic pain conditions or Lyme, um, that that moment of diagnosis is not the end of that kind of struggle to be taken seriously because, you know, with these conditions that require kind of lifelong often management, there's still a lot of tendency to not trust women's symptoms um, and and really kind of believe the tests over the objective tests over women's reports and and, and so you could have you know, women with autoimmune diseases complaining of fatigue and being told well you know your your blood work looks fine you're fine you know um, and so it's yeah and, and especially as uh, as women we we do face these disproportionate risks of chronic conditions um, which can mean, you know, decades and decades of kind of frustrating interactions with the medical system. Um, well, you know, I definitely agree. And, and you, you talk about Hashimoto's in your book, um, which is, uh, whether it's a woman or a man, actually completely ignore it, even if you have positive testing. Um, I find so in Canada anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it can be very significant and life-altering, and I know it affects mostly women. Um, can mm-hmm. you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Hashimoto's is um, an autoimmune condition that affects the thyroid and, and leads to hypothyroidism, so an underactive thyroid. Um, and a lot of patients struggle to get diagnosed because the symptoms come on usually pretty gradually and the symptoms include things like fatigue and depression and weight gain and um, things that I, especially in women are, are easy to kind of brush off as, as just stress or, you know, menopause. Um, and even after diagnosis, there is a lot of frustration among patients. Um, you know, as you said, we're, uh, the testing is often often doctors really kind of focus on on one single test to to gauge thyroid health um, instead of looking a little bit more holistically at at the different indicators of, of thyroid function and kind of taking the patient's symptoms into account. Um, 
and often patients will, will be treated but continue to have symptoms um, and be told, well, you know, your, your TSH levels are, are normal, you know, it's, everything's fine, even though they're continuing to, to battle fatigue and depression. Um, and, you know, it's, a, it's, I think, a good illustration of this dynamic that comes up again and again in the book of, of just instead of acknowledging that there's just a lot we don't know about thyroid health and, and that perhaps our tests are not telling us what they need to tell us, um, kind of just brushing aside all of those gaps in knowledge by saying, oh, well, any patient who is still experiencing symptoms is, is you know, just suffering from a somatoform disorder. It's all in their, her head. Um, patients who think they have hypothyroidism but test normal, you know, they're, they're also just psychosomatic patients. Um, and it's, the stereotype just becomes this way to just not admit that, you know, maybe there's something we don't know here and we should actually be listening to these patients um, and using their symptoms as a clue to kind of figure it out. Well, you know, and, and they're using saying it's all in your head and anxiety and depression as a, a coverall for um, what's going on. And, um, it, you know, not that those things may not be there, but often they're there because you don't feel good. You know, right, you're anxious right. and depressed because you're sick, because you're not taken seriously, because you've already seen four doctors and you can't get answers and your job and your relationship are, are threatened because of how you feel. And so who wouldn't be experiencing that, I think? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's truly amazing, you know, you, you just the number of studies that have have sort of investigated rates of depression or anxiety among uh, patients with these poorly understood chronic conditions and, and really point to that finding as, as evidence that, oh, the, the mental health problems are causing these conditions without acknowledging that, well, you know, correlation is not causation, and it's very logical to think that if you are suffering from a chronic illness, particularly one that's so poorly understood that there isn't very much effective treatment, um, yeah, you're going to be really upset about it and distressed, and and, um, that's going to take a real serious toll on your psyche. Yeah, I I agree. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Maya Dusenberry, and we'll be back shortly. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of return to peace. 
Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN. The Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Maya Dusenberry. She is the author of Doing Harm, the truth about how bad medicine and lazy science leave women dismissed, misdiagnosed, and sick. So, Maya, one thing I want to, um, we, we just touched on, you know, how depression and anxiety and how, of course, that will be there with a chronic illness. But I also, you know, in your book, you talk about how women are actually affected by chronic pain more, which I, I hadn't realized. Um, but I also, I think, in how we display being um, either experiencing symptoms we hadn't before or being in an extreme amount of pain is different than how men display it. I know for me, um, I can look like I'm anxious, even if I'm not, but that can be, you know, there, there's this um, urgency to what is going on. And um, of course, we, we cry easier. We're not as stoic as men are, um, or that's the, the myth anyway. And, and I, I think that some, somehow that can get displayed into, well, you're um, or perceived and you're displaying pain, you're displaying anxiety. So that must be the cause instead of the cause is creating the anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this is a huge part of it. I think that, um, you know, there's a really seminal article called the girl who cried pain from, from 2001 that, that looks at, summarizes a lot of research that looks at gender disparities in pain treatments and, and kind of reflects on, on wh- where that bias is coming from um, and concludes that it is that, that women's reports of pain are, are more likely to be seen as as signs of an emotional problem and, and, and are psychologized and men when they enter the medical system and report pain are, are more likely to be taken seriously and have their pain treated more aggressively. Um, and I think definitely part of that is is this sort of 
these stereotypes that we have that men are expected to be stoic in the face of pain while women um, are, are assumed to be and, and sort of are seen as having sort of more cultural permission to express emotion about about their pain. Um, and, and as a result, there's a sense that, you know, if a man, if a man is complaining of, of pain, um, since we kind of assume that he's reluctant to, to be doing that to begin with, then his, his report is taken more seriously. Um, but it's a really interesting dynamic because it's, there's no sort of logical reason why women's reports of pain then should be undertreated and, and taken <laughs> not seriously. Um, but it does seem to, to kind of operate as if as if that's the case, where we kind of assume that if men are stoic, then women must be overly emotional or over-reporting their pain instead of just, you know, reporting it <laughs> more accurately. And and, um, and it's it also really shows that there's this really hard catch-22 that, that women are in then because... Um, if you, if we assume that women have this emotional response to pain, if you kind of do cry or, or do express anxiety or emotion around it, um, you might be just brushed off as, as, as hysterical, which is something that um, lots of women report experiencing. But if you go the opposite route and try to be really stoic, and, and this is certainly advice that I think is often given to women, you know, to, to really try not to cry, to be really matter-of-fact about your pain, and, and basically try to be more like a stereotypical guy about it, um, that also runs a risk that you will just be seen as, oh, well, nothing's wrong, because we don't expect that, that response in women. And so I include in the book a, a story of a, of a young woman who was experiencing severe abdominal pain um, and was saying that it was really severe, that it was the worst pain she'd ever experienced, but was not particularly emotional, was not crying. And because of that, that the doctor clearly was underestimating how bad it was. Um, and she nearly died when her, her appendix ruptured. Um, so it is this, I think, very difficult balancing act of, of how exactly to express your, your pain or other symptoms without falling into either of those traps. Well, and um, just to go back to the example from um, the, the first segment that I talked about of the two patients, the man and the woman that went to emergency, um, I had a conversation with the woman about um, how she felt she should have behaved and, and what she was doing. And, um, and and this came to me because of that interview I did with Abby Norman. She had this whole paragraph when she went to emergency. Did I rate my pain high enough? Did I rate it too high? Are they going to take me seriously? Am I showing the pain enough of my showing we go through all these things are they going to believe me it's like we're playing this this juggling act of mm-hmm. um you know if i'm uh, upset then they're going to think i'm hysterical and this woman when she went to emergency she had denied the morphine they offered even though mm-hmm. she was in enough pain to sit in emergency for eight hours and she'd never had this pain before and was eventually actually diagnosed with interstitial cystitis. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, you know, she she um, didn't want to take the morphine and she feels like that played into some of it because she wasn't in enough pain to take treatment so she shouldn't have been taken seriously. But she'll never know that, you know. it it, it, uh, it we uh, And, you know, I've felt this as 
well, um, especially when I was looking for answers. How can I get them to take me seriously? Um, what should I display? Should I cry or should I not cry? Should I, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's right either. I think we should be able to go in and if we need to cry and if we don't not and, okay. you know, and just to experience what we're experiencing the way the men do. Right. And I mean, that, that example of the, the woman who denied the morphine is, is a perfect because you can also imagine that the exact opposite response could also be used against her. If she was seemed too eager for the morphine, she would risk being seen as potentially just drug-seeking and, and, and making up her pain entirely. So it's, again, another another case where it's totally unclear which which way will get you the the treatment and, and care that you are are looking for. Well, in 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 the end of your your book, you 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 talk about how there there really isn't a way. Um, there was one story you were telling, and she realized it didn't matter what she did; it was just going to be this way. And really, the shift needs to happen within the system, not within the individual patient. Right now, we just need to survive so that we can get our the help that we need. But in the meantime, as well, we need to advocate and do, you know, books like this and shows like this so that people understand what's happening and eventually this changes. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's been it's been challenging in, in these interviews I've been doing to kind of walk this line of, of wanting to certainly encourage women to be their own advocate and, and do research and um, feel sort of empowered to get a second opinion. And, and I certainly do hope that, that the book, just by kind of providing some of this background and history and, and the hard data, will, will help women feel free to do that and, and give them a, a bit more kind of sense of a healthy skepticism about the limits of medical knowledge and and. and not just accept it if, if somebody's telling them, oh, nothing's wrong or it's just stress if you know um, in your bones that it's not. Um, but I do think it's very important to recognize that this, this isn't a problem that can be fixed by individual women just becoming more empowered um, and, you know, in part because of all of these catch-22s we were just talking about. Um, and, and it does require that in order for this to be fixed for everyone and, and not just those patients who have the financial or educational resources needed to, to kind of be super patients, um, this really requires systemic change um, and, and requires people within the medical profession and within the research communities to first acknowledge that this is such a huge problem um, and then really commit to, to finding ways to fix it. Well, and so what can someone do um, in if they want to, to work for change, especially where they are? Is there something that they can do? Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly a lot of potential for, for sort of grassroots patient advocacy um, around increasing funding for a lot of conditions that, that especially impact women and have been really neglected in the research realm. And um, so I think that's a really promising avenue. Um, also, patient advocacy, I think, can can help 
in demanding changes to medical education so that doctors are getting more education about unconscious bias and, and putting systems in place to so that doctors are getting more feedback about diagnostic errors because I think that that's a really big, big part of the problem and part of why it's become really kind of self-perpetuating where doctors just don't know when they get it wrong often. Um, but I think, you know, for just the most basic thing that women can do, I think, is just tell their stories if, if they have them. Um, I think there's a lot of power in women seeing that other other women have similar experiences and, and kind of having that moment of realization that it's not just me, you know, that, that the, these experiences are not just the result of individual bad luck um, or, or even, you know, I think a lot of women assume that, you know, maybe I could have done something more to advocate for myself. Um, so I think there's a lot of power in seeing that, no, these are, there's a pattern here and these experiences are reflective of these larger biases within medicine, um, and I think that kind of storytelling can also be really powerful in showing healthcare providers that this is an issue, because like I said, I, I, I think that at this point, it's it's sort of a biasy that flies under the radar a bit, um, and doctors, I think, need to first just realize that this is more widespread, I think, than, than all of us assume. Well, and I agree, and even if we advocate for the education to change, the doctors that have already gone through school still need to understand that this is um, an issue. Um, And I know Mm -hmm. that we can all understand this by um, reading your book. So can you tell us how people can get a hold of that or get any more information if they want want it? Sure. Um, Yeah, you can um, check out my website, which is mayadusenberry.com. and that has links to where you can buy the book, which is available wherever books are sold. Um, it's also available as an audio book. Um, and there's a variety of additional articles on, on my website that kind of touch on a lot of related topics because I, I found after completing it that there was um, still so much that I had learned in my research that I didn't even have space to include in the book, so I'm I'm still working on (laughs) additional additional articles to draw attention to some of the particular problems. Uh, Well, perfect. Hopefully I'll have you back on the show. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. I absolutely loved this conversation. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you. (laughs) And uh, if anybody listening wants more information about my story um, or my health journey, you can go to my blog site at dr-risk.com. You can also filter shows by topic um, if you're um, wanting to find um, Abby Norman's show uh, from March, as well as don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And um, also be sure to make today a great day. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 